Hey, it's Justin. Before we jump into this episode, I have one very important, very exciting thing to tell you about. Hayes Fire Studios is bringing Holy Ghost Stories to several cities this spring in something we're calling Holy Ghost Stories Live, the Exodus Tour. If you're a regular Holy Ghost Stories listener, you've heard about these live shows before. This is your chance to be there, to join me in person for a magical evening where we immerse ourselves in the epic story of the Exodus and meet Yahweh inside it. I will be joined by none other than Kendall Ramsour, the fabulous composer and cellist responsible for the entirety of the musical score you heard in the Exodus series here on the podcast. Kendall is a Boston Music Award winner, a finalist on America's Got Talent. He's performed at the the Grammys. Trust me, you will love hearing him play and experiencing the live accompaniment he will provide on cello as I tell you this unforgettable story. Not only that, we will be joined by gifted vocalist Eve Adeline, who will help give voice to our wonder and praise as we gaze upon Yahweh together. I'm telling you, this will be a very special time. All of the cities and dates are on the website, holyghoststories.org, and the tickets are live right now. If you'd like to join us, be sure to grab your seats ASAP. These shows consistently sell out. I've heard from many of you, for instance, who were not able to get tickets to the Christmas show before they were gone, and you were bummed about that. So don't procrastinate. If you're listening to this on or after February 9th, now is the time to reserve your spot. I don't want you to miss out. Holyghoststories.org. Oh, and we're doing a pre-show bonus. It's a meet and greet and Q&A with Kendall and myself before the show that you can add to your ticket at purchase. We want it to be intimate, so there's a limited number of these spots per show, but we'd love to be able to meet you guys and chat about the exodus or my research trip to Egypt or the process of collaborating or anything else you fancy. Also, seating is general admission, but anyone who grabs the pre-show bonus gets a guaranteed front of house seat. So come hang out and get a great spot for the show. We cannot wait to see you in April. I promise you this will be an unforgettable night of story and song. I hope you'll be able to join us. HolyGhostStories.org What if there is reason to disbelieve? What if what God says he'll do seems difficult or unlikely or absurd? And what if our trust is a prerequisite to experiencing the miraculous? This is a story about the mysterious ways of God, about judgment and mercy, hunger and plenty, death and life, about prophets and people who must acquaint themselves with the divine in the midst of a calling. And it's a story about what happens when those men and women dare to trust. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. What? The king of Israel snarls, canine contempt twisting his face as the words of the prophet ring in the throne room. 
Images of Baal, the bull-riding god of storms, look on from their pedestals, the capital of the northern kingdom, a tainted canvas, awash in idolatrous hues. With shining eyes, the prophet continues, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Your word? How dare you? Anger churns inside the king, but his wife, if she's present for this audience, seethes with loathing and fury unmatched by any of her husband's emotions. She is high priestess of the Asherah cult, princess of Sidon, and devotee of all things Baal, the one who enlightened her husband to the glory of these gods of the Canaanites. Well, it wasn't exactly a conversion. The kings of Israel had been walking that path for generations. And now, this upstart prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, did he say his name is? acts as though he can simply decree a suspension of the power of the god of storms? No, the queen will not have it, nor will the king. Jezebel and Ahab begin plotting as soon as Elijah leaves. Elijah's heart races as he leaves the palace. Views from the hilltop city of Samaria stretch in every direction, but he does not pay them attention. The fire of the monarch's rage has the prophet rattled, surely. This terse declaration to Ahab will be the first prophetic utterance attributed to Elijah. If it is, in fact, his inaugural assignment, Elijah is perhaps in his late 20s, maybe 30 years old. A farmer or a herdsman at the time of his call, a son, likely a brother. It will be supposed that Elijah first heard the voice of Yahweh in his homeland of Gilead, the forested hill country east of the Jordan, but this will be conjecture. Unlike so many of the prophets before and after him, Elijah's origin is mysteriously veiled. Though millions will hear his name in the generations to come, none will know the Israelite tribe to which he belongs, nor his exact hometown, nor indeed the occasion of his calling. Whatever that moment of calling involved, Elijah clings to it now, plays it back in his mind surely as he makes his way through the streets of Samaria in a fog of fear. Yahweh enlisted him as a prophet, so there is no choice, is there? He obeyed, and he must continue to obey. But at what cost? Will the enraged king call for his head? Does Elijah wonder if he'll ever see his mother again? His sisters, his little brother? The burgeoning weight of realization drags in the pit of his stomach. If not now, then someday soon, this calling will end in his death. If his thoughts drift thusly, the young prophet should not be faulted for such imaginings. He cannot know, of course, Yahweh's astonishing intent. Elijah will be one of only two human beings to walk the face of the earth and never die. Leave here, comes the voice of the divine. 
If Elijah's pulse has calmed, it accelerates at the sound of Yahweh's instruction. Turn eastward and hide at the brook Kirit, where it enters the Jordan. So Ahab is hunting him already. You are to drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Elijah blinks. Ravens? Well, eastward it is. He sets his sight on the verdant floodplain of the Jordan. Time to hide. Birdsong precedes the dawn at Kerit. Pippets, wagtails, and warblers, buntings, desert finches, and the odd blue-cheeked bee-eater all offer back to Yahweh the music he gave them. Elijah stretches beneath his shelter, sloughing off sleep's cocoon, awakening to another enchanted day in the Almighty's care. He makes his way down to the brook, scoops the cool spring water into his cupped hands, and drinks, splashes his face, and blinks, looking east to the low-slung mountains, out toward where his family lives, where the sun's brazen approach makes the sky blush with anticipation. Soon, they will arrive. Elijah looks forward to this regular visitation, surely, These days in hiding are solitary, and the young prophet is not a man who loves being alone. If he cannot speak to his family or his friends back home, he can at least speak to the ravens. Is it a sprawling flock that arrives each morning, a mass of shadowy shapes swarming toward Elijah's camp, clutching crusts of stolen bread and meat in their talons, dropping their payload as they alight on the banks of the brook, cawing and jabbering to one another in boisterous communion? Or is it just two or three birds, each of them carrying a sizable trove of food, Feathers fluttering against the still morning air as they circle downward toward the waiting Elijah, hopping on the grass, ebony eyes blinking as they tilt their heads. If it's just a few, perhaps it's the same few each day, one team in the morning and another at sundown. These daily visits would afford Elijah the chance to get to know these servants of Yahweh. Ravens are famously intelligent renowned among their avian counterparts for their ability to craft and use tools, plan for the future, barter, remember people's faces, even play games like hide-and-seek. Perhaps Elijah discovers their startling capacity for mimicking human speech, teaching his dark-winged friends to say his name, to reply when he tells them good morning, to sing with him his songs of praise. At least these birds have not bowed their knees to Baal. Things at Kerit are quiet, but good. Elijah is safe and well-fed. But as weeks tick by with not a drop of rain, the land begins to get thirsty. 
the grass withers, the flowers fade, and eventually the brook dries up. From somewhere in the clear, dry air, a voice speaks, the voice. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and remain there. If Elijah anticipates another camping trip, he's introduced to Yahweh's penchant for fresh methodology. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to sustain you. The road northwest to Zarephath is long, four days' journey, maybe six. As Elijah travels, he has opportunity to survey the extent of the drought. As far as the eye can see, brown eclipses green. What was supple is now brittle. Wadis are dry. Fallen birds litter the ground while hungry maggots make short work of their carcasses. He passes through villages full of gaunt children, the faces of their parents marked with anxiety. Lifeless soil is swept by the wind into swirling clouds that drift like specters past the beleaguered worshippers of Baal. The clouds offer bleak prognosis. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Finally, Elijah hears gulls crying. The air grows humid. He smells the sea. Amidst the failing vineyards and shriveling gardens of this once lush coastland, Zarephath waits. Why did Yahweh choose this place? And a widow who's bound to be struggling, how is she going to take care of him? But if Yahweh can use a raven... She's bent low when Elijah approaches and fails to notice him for a moment, perhaps. The prophet watches her. She's gathering sticks for a cooking fire, surely. It's certainly not hard to find good, dry firewood these days, but she's taking care, a strange amount of care, as she chooses each piece of wood, as though this is to be no ordinary fire. Please, Elijah calls to her. Her head snaps up. Please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. Why would the God of the Hebrews speak to her? The woman looks around at her home, the fields surrounding her house. The drought has not been kind to this place. The sea sloshes in the distance with cruel disappointment, all promise and no provision. She looks at her son. He smiles back at her with eyes that remind her of her late husband. How long has it been since she saw those eyes? How many suns have risen and set on a world crammed with his absence? How many more days can the two of them left survive? And now... This Yahweh appears in the heart of Baal's lands and leaves her a message, a strange command she is clearly unable to obey. 
take care of some Israelite prophet. While every day she manages to feed herself and her child feels like a prize snatched from the jaws of this drought, she does not have enough. But she will not disobey the voice of deity, even when it is strange and foolish. She glances at her little son and back at the traveler, scoops the boy up in her arms, perhaps, and goes inside to pour some water from their precious store. If these are to be their last moments on earth, so be it. She will spend them offering hospitality. In the house, she hears the man call, Please, bring me a piece of bread as well. At this, the woman's eyes well with tears, surely. She looks at the jug of oil and the jar of flour, her last of each. She looks at her son, his cheekbones dangerously prominent. Her sandbagged defenses crumble, and her face is a flood of tears. She walks to the doorway, looks the man in the eyes, and says, As Yahweh your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the jar and a little oil in the jug. She tries to gather herself. When you came, I was gathering some sticks in order to prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. She wipes her eyes and sees the prophet looking back at her, smiling. Do not fear, Elijah says to the woman. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from the flour and oil first and bring it out to me. After that, you may make some for yourself and your son. The woman stands there stunned. Can he be serious? This is a wicked demand. How dare he? But his eyes are so kind. Before she can speak, Elijah continues, For this is what Yahweh, God of Israel, says, The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry until the day Yahweh sends rain on the face of the earth. What? Confused, the woman returns to her kitchen. The flour rests scant at the bottom of the jar. How much oil is there? One tablespoon, maybe two. Not enough for her initial plan, even, let alone a portion of bread for this prophet. Is this man truly a representative of deity? And could, could the word of Yahweh be true? Hope is too strong a word for what she feels, but she does feel something that is not the despair that's marked so many days. With trembling hands, she reaches into the jar of flour. A couple of tablespoons go into a bowl with a splash of priceless water. She mixes this into a slurry, adding more flour bit by bit. As she works, does she pray? Does she, for the first time, murmur words in the direction of the strange Hebrew god who's interrupted her life in such a maddening, possibly wonderful way. Perhaps, 
Regardless, this act, this gamble of obedience, is prayer enough. A bit more flour, and then olive oil. The final measure of flour, and then her shaking palms knead the mixture together. The flour, the water, and the oil have become something different with the pressing, something new. Now, heat. While the dough rests, she bends down and lifts the taboon, the household oven of her day, a large inverted clay bowl with a lidded opening at the top. Beneath it are a few smooth, flat stones on the ground. She places the sticks she gathered atop the stones, sets them alight, and replaces the taboon, minus its lid. She invites Elijah in, perhaps. As they wait for the fire to go ashen, Elijah plays with the boy, surely. He was grateful for the ravens, but this lad is better at peekaboo. When the fire has burned for a few minutes, the woman lifts the taboon, sweeps away the ash, and presses the dough onto the hot rocks. She replaces the dome, secures its lid, and covers that with the ashes. In a few minutes, the flour and water and oil have been transformed again. The smell of hot bread fills the room. By this time, the boy has found a friend for life in Elijah. The prophet smiles, thinks perhaps of his little brother. The woman places the bread before Elijah, and Elijah smiles. Thank you. And then, maybe, Elijah nods to the jars on the counter. Another smile. This time, a wink. The woman rises nervously and approaches the jars she all but emptied a moment ago. She bends over them and peers in. His mother's shrieks startle the little boy, but Elijah's laughter calms him. More bread. Lots of bread, probably. More laughter. And no less flour or oil. Just as Yahweh said. The coming days are marked by a happiness previously absent from the widow's home. Elijah is quick to help his host however he can with tasks around the property. He's reached official, unofficial uncle status, surely taking the boy on walks, showing him how to make a tent, maybe even teaching him how to make a raven talk. Mealtimes are livelier with three rather than two. And there are mealtimes. That alone is a thrill. Every time the woman reaches into the jar, there is flour to spare. Every time she tips the jug of oil, a miracle pours forth. Yahweh smiles. Light in the midst of shadow. But one morning... The house is quieter than it should be. There are no quick footsteps, no high-pitched giggles. The boy has taken ill. The illness is severe. The boy's cheeks, finally round again after these last months of nourishment, have become pallid. His eyes glazed. His forehead glistens with fever. But it's the shortness of breath that has his mother worried. 
It's like he's drowning in his bed. It's too much to watch. He is all she has. But she cannot look away, and she will not leave his side. The sweat on the boy's forehead mingles with the widow's tears. She prays as he gasps. But to whom does she pray? And Elijah? Where is Elijah as the boy suffers? By his side, perhaps? Or preparing the bread so that the woman can stay there with her son? He prays, certainly, asks Yahweh to spare this child so precious to his widowed mother, this child who's become precious to him. But the gasping continues until it stops. Elijah hears a banshee scream explode from the bedside. He runs in. The woman is sobbing. The boy is still. Breathless. Gone. Elijah jumps back as suddenly the woman spins around to face him. Man of God, what have you done to me? He shakes his head in protest, but she's shouting now with forlorn fire in her eyes. Have you come here to punish my sins by killing my son? The prophet's face changes rapidly, cycling between despair and defensiveness and compassion and anger and resolve. Give him to me. Elijah scoops the boy from the rapidly cooling bed. He walks away from the reaching woman, leaving her sobbing behind him. Cradling the child, he makes his way to the ladder that leads to the upper room he's been given. He shifts the boy to one arm and climbs. Finally, Elijah stoops beside his bed and lays his little friend on the mattress. He looks toward the heavens searching for words, searching for reasons, searching for hope. Oh, Yahweh, my God. At first, it's all he can manage. His face fixed upward, the tears now are falling across his temples and dropping into his ears. Why have you killed the son of this widow with whom I am staying? Yahweh watches, waits. Elijah wants to say more. There is more, surely, to say, but these are the only words he can muster. He looks down at the boy. He is so still. And then, moving by instinct, driven by reflex, the prophet stretches himself across the boy's body. He breathes in the smell of the little tunic, weeps as the last bits of warmth leave the child's face. Finally, Elijah withdraws. 
But then he spreads himself over the lifeless body once more. The boy's corpse warms for a moment from the presence of the prophet and then cools as he withdraws again. A third time, Elijah stretches his body over the child's remains like a shroud or the burying earth or the waters of baptism. As he does, the prophet utters a fervent plea. Yahweh, my God, please let this child's life return to him. Please. And in the stillness of that room, with Elijah's tears smeared on the little boy's cheeks and the sobs of the widow echoing off the walls below, Yahweh moves. The child's heart lurches. Motionless blood cells jolt forward and then race through arteries and veins. His esophagus expands, making way for oxygen requisitioned by ravenous lungs. His little lips split wide, and with a gasp, the boy opens his eyes. Elijah gasps. Now, can it be? And it is. Back down now, a new embrace, new tears, laughter, and more tears. He scoops the child up in his arms, makes his way down the ladder, and moves toward the woman. She's collapsed in a corner, perhaps, lost in her loss, shuddering under an unbearable weight of sorrow. Look, comes a gentle voice. She turns. Your son is alive. Wide eyes, a gasp. His mother's shrieks startle the little boy, but Elijah's laughter calms him. The prophet of Yahweh transfers the child to the woman's arms. She buries her face in her son's chest, breathes in the smell of his little tunic, weeps as the last bits of warmth return to the child's face. She looks up at Elijah. Now I know this, that you are a man of God. She sniffles. And the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. Three years pass while Elijah, it seems, remains at the home of this little family. The drought continues. The soil cracks. Animals migrate en masse south and west toward the fertile plains of the Nile Delta. People fight over access to wells. Prayers are lifted to Baal, to no avail. The landscape fades into sepia tones, and the idolatrous Israelites begin to question their faith. But this woman in Zarephath, a little town with marvelous views of the endless expanse of the sea, this woman weathers the plague in a different way. Every day she scoops flour from that jar. Every day. She pours oil that shouldn't be there into dough that's there again. The sound of her son's laughter echoes off the walls of her home. 
and the gentle, steady voice of the prophet tells her of a God who sees the hurting, a God who, even in the midst of his fearsome judgment, creates pockets of grace. Goshen's where the plague cannot reach. She nods as Elijah speaks. The word of Yahweh in his mouth is truth. Hey, Justin here. Thank you for listening to The Harbinger, The Fugitive, and The Host. I hope it blessed you. Now, don't forget about the show in Northwest Arkansas this November, Holy Ghost Stories Live, The Exodus. Tickets are available starting the day this episode drops, so head to holyghoststories.org and reserve your seat. Bring a friend or your family. This show is good for anybody 10 and up. And join me for an enchanted night of story and song. You will not soon forget it. November 19th in Bella Vista, Arkansas at the Mildred B. Cooper Chapel. I hope I get to see you there. Now, a shout out to some of the folks who make this podcast happen. It is entirely listener supported. And if you guys don't support it, it's real simple. It just goes away. So I'm grateful, so grateful as we all should be to the patrons of Holy Ghost Stories over on Patreon. If you join them, you will have the satisfaction of knowing you're enabling kingdom art. And you'll be able to come to shows like the one in November for free if you jump in with the Tours. So let's give it up to them, the Tours who give at the highest level of giving every month to make sure these stories are available for people around the world. Miranda, Amanda, Carrie, Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Jody, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. You guys are my ravens. Thank you. You can join them at patreon.com slash holyghoststories. Links in the show notes. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and sound editing by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. <laughs>